0: Good evening. There are 120 participants in attendance at Rare Book School this week, including 91 students, 8 faculty members, 7 program staff members. There were 82 participants here in week one, 101 in week two, and 90 here last week. The overall rise in these numbers from Rare Book Schools weeks one through four is intentional. We try to keep Rare Book School Week One in particular relatively small so that the staff and I can learn or relearn our jobs. 1998 marks the 15th anniversary of Rare Book School's founding in 1983. Many of you, I know, are old Rare Book School hands. (coughs) Indeed, just under half of this week's 91 students have taken at least one course in a previous Rare Book School. Welcome back. Which means to be sure that fully half of you are here for the first time. special welcome to the newcomers, there is, of course, at least a 50-50 chance that we will see you back in future years, (laughs) at which point you, too, can say that you've heard and seen it and me, and especially this speech, (laughs) all before. We're expecting a total of 337 participants in Rare Book School this summer, slightly up from last year including 291 students taking a total of 26 courses over the four weeks between July 13th and August 7th. Last year there were 301 participants in Rebook school so we're up slightly from last year, 301 to 337. But this is misleading because in 1998 Rebook school scheduled courses not only in July and August but also in January and March. With a close, of the RBS 1998 summer session tomorrow. We will have run a total of 30 courses this year over six weeks for a total of about 315 students, 370 participants, the largest rare book school annual hall ever. I don't know as though we're ever going to get much larger. I have other responsibilities besides rare book school at UVA. I teach two undergraduate courses in the history of the book each fall, and I oversee or mount three large exhibitions each year in the Rotunda. I deal with a 702-member Friends group. It reached 700 late last week. I help maintain roster data for the Book Arts Press Address book, which has more than 2,000 names in it, and run a small publications program attached to it. Look after the Book Arts Press collections, which are large and growing. Two more Lucilles today. And I'm on the road about 20% of the time at conferences speaking and making pastoral visits on former students and Rare Book School faculty members. My own limitation is that I really want to do it all myself. I object to being called a micromanager. I really don't want to manage anyone. I really want to do it all. and it's not likely that the cottage industries are going to grow very much given this limitation in my management style. It should immediately be apparent from this and many other things that administratively Rare Book School and the Book Arts Press, which uh, administers it, is a very unusual organization. And indeed, the Book Arts Press itself came into existence because of a variety of unusual circumstances. Its origins lie in the descriptive bibliography course. I began teaching at the Graduate Library School at Columbia University in 1972. I began acquiring materials to help support that teaching, and one thing led to another. We developed a friends group beginning in 1976 to help pay for the teaching collections, and a summer school, this school, Rare Book School, in 1982 to increase the use and benefit that could be derived from those teaching collections. By the time the Book Arts Press left Columbia University for greener pastures in 1992, the teaching collections had grown to slightly more than 20 tons in weight. I know that because I have a bill for Mayflower for the movement of 20 tons of material. I estimate that the collections have doubled in size since then. In part, because on our arrival to Charlottesville, we suggested to a waiting bibliographical world in this country and abroad that it would be appropriate for them to send presents to help us mark the occasion. In the event, we received nearly 3,000 gifts. Now, to be sure, that total included the gift of 657 little blue books from Ann Bowden and William Todd, but it also included individual presents, some of them of very considerable value, From institutions ranging from the British Library to the Pierpont Morgan, and from hundreds of individuals. And the presents continue to come in. Eight boxes last week alone, a good week to be sure. The materials that arrived as gifts to the Book Arts Press simply uh, in the months of July and August would fill a good-sized room. And ranges uh, from fourteen copies of Lucille, to a collection of manuscript scraps that includes a piece of one of the Mainz Psalters and uh, some bits of Carolingian seals. a good month. In New York City, the Book Arts Press was part of the School of Library Service, which was one of the graduate schools of Columbia University. The press was, in short, buried several levels deep within a very large and complicated hierarchy. With our move to the University of Virginia in 1992, our structure changed radically. The Book Arts Press became independent, for one thing. It had no corporate existence of any kind at Columbia. It was a sign on a door. But in Virginia, it became a not-for-profit corporation chartered in the Commonwealth, It's in the process of becoming a separate 501c3 at the moment it relies on the university's foundation 501c3 status. At Columbia, the Book Arts Press and all of its contents were owned, and indeed its proprietor, were owned by the trustees of Columbia University in the city of New York, as the stationery will tell you. The press had no independent existence. In Charlottesville, The Book Arts Press is on an entirely different footing. When you are in the Book Arts Press suite of rooms on the first floor of Alderman Library here at UVA, you are standing on state property, but you are not looking at it. The collections of the Book Arts Press are the property of the Board of Directors of the Book Arts Press and of no one else. I have said this in my Thursday evening speeches every week in Rare Book School since 1992, and I will repeat it again now, Should it ever cease to be to the joint advantage of the University of Virginia and the Book Arts Press for them to continue their relationship, that relationship will end. The Book Arts Press currently enjoys a happy relationship, a very happy relationship indeed, with the University of Virginia. But that relationship exists because of the joint agreement of the University and the Book Arts Press, and it can be terminated by either party at any time. This, it seems to me, is a most favorable state of affairs. The university is in a position where it may at any time reassess its support of the Book Arts Press and its activities, and that support is unremitting and very considerable at the moment. In its turn, the Book Arts Press is in a position where, if its needs can no longer be met by the University of Virginia, it will be able to seek a happier home elsewhere. I mentioned the board of the Book Arts Press. That board consists of Martin Antonetti, who began his rare book school career in 1983 as a student. Started as assistant director of the school in 1984 and ended up its deputy director in 1989. He gave rare book school evening lectures in 90 and 93 and has been a faculty member every year in the school since 1995. He is curator of rare books at Smith. James Davis, who took his 18th rare book school course two weeks ago, has been on the Rare Book School staff since 1984 and really has seen it all, including not only all of the subsequent Rare Book School sessions, but also both of the Rare Book School 1998 winter sessions. He is retired Rare Books Librarian at UCLA. Ellen Dunlap, a Rare Book School faculty member in 1987, Rare Book School speaker in 1984 and 1986, as well as earlier this year. Peter Herdrick, the director of all three of the Book Arts Press videotapes, and my own executor, Catherine Morgan, who took her thirteenth rare book school course earlier this year, associate director for special collections at the University of Virginia. <coughs> Excuse me, and Nicholas Pickwode, in independent practice again in. Uh, Norfolk outside Norwich and associated with Rare Book School since 1987. More on him shortly. In addition to the six directors of the Book Arts Press, Antonetti, Davis Dunlap, Herdrick, Morgan, and Pickwode, there are five advisors who meet annually with the board of directors and uh, are for practical purposes indistinguishable from them. They are William Barlow, Rare Book School faculty member since 1994, celebrated book collector and a tax accountant in the Bay Area. Peter Graham, several times a Rare Book School speaker, founder of Ex Libris, the electronic bulletin board in our field, about to become head of the Syracuse University Library after a long career at Rutgers. William Joyce, who co taught a number of courses with me back in our Columbia days, Rare Book School speaker in 1984 currently Associate University Librarian for Rare Books and Special Collections at Princeton. Catherine kais Lieb, eight times a Book Arts Press speaker, including last year when she gave the Malkin Lecture, editor of American Book Prices Current, and Robert Wedgworth, my old boss at the School of Library Service at Columbia University, one of the great supporters of the Book Arts Press, Uh, currently University Librarian at the University of Illinois. Wedgworth allowed the Book Arts Press to accumulate a deficit at Columbia of nearly $200,000. And that was almost entirely the result of Rare Book School. So the advisors to the Book Arts Press, Barlow, Graham, Joyce, Lieb, and Wedgworth, the Board of the Book Arts Press, Antonetti, Davis, Dunlap, Herdrick, Morgan, and Pickwell. The Board now meets annually in January and will continue to do so. There's a general feeling uh, on the part of my board that the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School have become too important for one person to run without advice. Uh, We're maintaining a dialogue on this subject. (laughs) We've had a number of new ventures in recent years. The one that uh, greatly interests me is a program of undergraduate exhibitions. Undergraduate exhibitions in this country are very rare. Undergraduates help with exhibitions, but they don't do them. Here, I've been having students in my History of the Book class at uh, the University of Virginia come up with an exhibition topic, write the exhibition, mount it, do the catalog, and speak on it. Now, this is difficult, because undergraduates are like mayflies, as you know. By the time they know enough to do anything by way of an exhibition, they're out of here. So it's something of a challenge to accelerate the whole process of doing a major exhibition so that an undergraduate can do it. This fall, uh, one of my students from this past fall in the engineering school, I teach undergraduate courses in the Department of History in the School of Engineering. And the terms of my appointment here allow me to teach in any department that will have me. Uh, This fall, Darby Kimball will be doing an exhibition in the Rotunda called Are You Sure This is a Good Idea?, Bad Ideas in American Publishing History. She very cleverly wrote to dozens of major American publishers and asked them, what is the worst idea you ever had for a book? And she has accounts of books bound in AstroTurf. uh, One that we all love because it's in the office at the moment. It's a baby book, baby's first book with a rattle built in which seemed like a good idea. The title of this exhibition is Are You Sure This Is a Good Idea? Mm-hmm. It seemed like a good idea until the babies began eating into the rattle. Ferris Strauss had to do a Consumer Reports recall on that one. Well, there are a great many other books in the exhibition that are uh, range from the absurd to the utterly hilarious, and if you're in the neighborhood, I help you look in. We hope to get some interesting publicity on that one as well. In the spring... Of 1999, uh, Elliot Talley, whom some of you know, he works in the Digital Tech Center here in the summer, and who was, again, a student in my class last year, will be doing an exhibition on Thomas Jefferson ephemera, Thomas Jefferson on beer bottles, uh, with the cooperation of Monticello. That will be up next summer, so 50% of you should have a chance to see it. In 1995 we began a program of what we call Rare Book School Master Classes. The idea was to take an interesting subject, the best possible person to teach it, and the best possible location to teach it in. And these were inaugurated in 1995 with Paul Morgan teaching a course in Incunables, eight students and him circling the Gutenbergs at the Pierpont Morgan Library. Paul repeated that course at Huntington in February 1997 And I hope we'll repeat it again at Princeton in yet still another collection, uh, unparalleled, for its teaching resources in 15th century books. Albert Deroulet taught a codicology course at Princeton last year uh, using the superb Princeton collection of medieval manuscripts. And that, too, I hope will continue not only in this country but abroad and I'm in negotiation for other Rare Book School master classes as well. They are absolutely a labor of love. When you have eight students at $600 apiece, you have a gross potential of $4,800. By the time you finish paying your faculty member and transportation, and no one ever taught for me with the intention of getting rich, there really is not very much left over for anything beyond the coffee breaks. And indeed, my. Policy. my uh, practice with uh, Princeton and the Huntington and the Morgan is simply to split whatever is left over from direct expenses, and we have never split anything remotely resembling four figures. These institutions typically uh, put two curators into these classes for the entire time of the class. So in terms of their cost-effectiveness, clearly it makes sense for them to be doing this only because I have an interest in driving education on in these difficult fields. Winter sessions, as you know, and as I said earlier, we had January and March sessions this year for the first time. They were very successful and in in unexpected ways, at least for me. Uh, The three of us who taught uh, Nicholas Pickwood and I in January and Sue Allen and I in March discovered, in fact, that we got more done in our winter session classes than we ever had before in our summer ones for the simple reason that there being fewer students around, we had more time to talk to our own students during coffee breaks. This meant that we uh, could proceed in class itself more quickly because questions could wait. Students had the reasonable expectation of talking to us outside of class. When Nicholas teaches in the summer, he has at least as many students, and at least as many former students at a coffee break as he has present students, probably twice as many, especially when Miriam is teaching, since by definition all of Miriam Foote's students are also Nicholas Pickwood students, so it's much harder for him to have informal conversation under such circumstances and even more difficult for me, as you can imagine. So my uh, intention is, my confident intention, is that rare book school winter classes will be institutionalized and that we will be running them henceforth, and please go home and tell your masters that this is something they they might wish to include in their budgets. We discovered Something else interesting about the winter sessions, I always knew that there were people who couldn't come very easily in the summer. You've only to look at the attendance statistics of libraries like the Folger Library or the Clark Library at UCLA, who get 80% of their readers in two months of the year, to realize that once staff members who must necessarily take vacation time in the summer because of commitments to their children, there really is very little time for staff members to take courses. And indeed, we had a good representation from the independent research libraries with heavy summer traffic in January and March. But in my stupidity, it had not occurred to me that there were a great many antiquarian booksellers in this country who could not come in the summer. If you are a bookseller in Ogunquit, Maine, where 90% of your traffic occurs in two and a half months of the year, then clearly you're not going to come to Rare Book School in July or August. But they came and in large numbers in January and in March, and it was a great pleasure to have them here, and uh, with this in mind, next year, next March, I propose to offer the Introductory Descriptive Bibliography course that's running this week, and possibly one or two other courses in March, 1999. In January 1999, and that will be January 4-8, if I remember correctly, Nicholas Pickwood has agreed to return to teach his course. I'll be teaching my illustration course. Dan Traster has agreed to teach Introduction to Rare Book Librarianship, and I'm hoping that Brett Charbonneau will teach his course in hand-press printing as well. We have been able to secure rooms, always difficult, on this campus, which is full of lovely but awkward spaces, and uh, things look very good indeed, especially for January. Summer 1999 back at the usual stand one day earlier. Barrett and Bidwell will, I hope, return to teach their celebrated course in the history of papermaking. Christopher Clarkson has agreed to return and teach medieval and early Renaissance bookbinding structure. Mike Ryan and Dan Traster will return to teach the course in teaching the history of the book. Albert Deroulet will be teaching both paleography and codicology and Richard Noble has agreed to teach an advanced course in bibliography. Among the new courses in 99, I have informal agreement from Joanna Drucker, who will teach, I hope, a course in 20th century artist books, and uh, practically a new course, because it's been so long since it's been in rare book school, Michael Turner on the 18th and early 19th century English book trade. I have for many years hoped to put in a course in rare Book School on illustration processes 1880-1940. I've had difficulty finding an instructor to teach that course, and uh, one in particular that I've approached goes to Maine summers and is not about to go to Charlottesville, even for one week in the summer. It's increasingly apparent That our introduction to the history of the book in the West course that Martin Antonetti teaches is overburdened. And uh, every year Martin falls a little bit further behind. So he never really got into the 20th century at all this year. It seems sensible to contemplate either splitting the history of the book into two courses the history of the book to 1800, the history of the book since 1800, or To set up two or three courses in addition to that course, perhaps the book to 1600, the book 1600 1750, the book since 1750. And I think something like that will happen in a year or so. The title of this year's version of this speech is State of the Bibliographical Nations, plural, a reflection of my adventuring in England this spring to talk up the possibilities of a rare book school in england and i hope that something will happen in this department in a couple of years obviously it's for the united kingdom to determine its own bibliographical future as regards education for rare books but the rare book school model does seem to work well and there are a great many celebrated rare book school faculty members who in fact carry a u.k. passport it does seem reasonable uh, to set up uh, a European extension to this operation, the more so when you think that the bulk of rare book school courses deal with European, not American books. This is not anything which I am contemplating running myself for a minute, but I will be very happy to provide software, whatever expertise we've developed, and perhaps startup money as well as. Uh, a share of our collections if we can get this going. So stay tuned on that one. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. The operations of the Book Arts Press at the University of Virginia are many and various. The university's support is nothing short of staggering. My salary is paid by the university and Jennifer Meyer, my assistant's salary, is paid for by the university and Rare Book School pays no part of it. That may be compared to the situation in Columbia where Rare Book School was billed for a quarter of my salary in fringe and half of my assistant's salary in fringe. That's why we ran into the awful debt that we ran into there. There wasn't enough money. It meant that we lost a third of the gross of Rare Book School in all the Columbia years before we even began. Education never pays, everybody who has any sense at all knows that, and high quality education loses money hand over fist. An indispensable precondition for Rare Book School as we now know it is the Book Arts Press support group, the Friends of the Book Arts Press. As I said a minute ago, there are at the moment 702 members. They contributed last year slightly over $40,000 in cash and considerably more than that in gifts in kind. And Rare Book School simply could not exist in its present form without their contributions, which pay for practically all of the teaching resources of Rare Book School. Rare Book School carries its own so far as uh, faculty expenses Uh, and coffee breaks, room rental in Peabody. Our student union is as rapacious as all student unions everywhere are on that subject. And our rental bill for Peabody this summer is more than $4,000. Rare Book School can pay these direct expenses, but in terms of the various teaching tools, it's the Friends of the Book Arts Press that we have to thank. There will be application blanks for joining the Friends of the Book Arts Press, everywhere in the reception which follows this lecture, and those of you who are not already friends, and the majority of the people in this room are, uh, who do not have hearts of stone, will (laughs) be be very glad to take a brochure, I'm sure. It is no secret, I know, that in uh, admitting students to rare book school classes, many of which get uh, twice as many applications as there's room, we observe the following policy. We take people who've never been to Rare Book School before and treat them as if they were friends of the Book Arts Press. But students who apply for courses who have been to Rare Book School before and who are not friends of the Book Arts Press in certain cases uh, are considered for admission only after friends of the Book Arts Press and those who have never been here before are considered. Now, these are only... I. Uh, I emphasize, in the case of what we call the ignorance courses, the only requirement for getting into my illustration course, for getting into Martin Antonetti's History of the Book course, is complete innocence of any aspect of the subject being covered. If you're too clever in your application and say that you know something in this area, you probably won't get in, because the courses are intended for people who know nothing of the subject at hand. So there really is no criterion for choosing people to go into the course either random or, in our case, simply new applicants or friends of the Book Arts Press. Friends of our friends are our friends. In many cases, this doesn't come up. Many courses every year do not sell out, and they're ignorance courses, and we admit all comers cheerfully, and we'll always do so. But it does seem to me, in view of the absolutely extraordinary expenses of this operation for what is, after all, a pretty small operation, that it's reasonable to prefer Friends of the Book Arts Press more so in that the basic membership is $30 a year, which does in fact not even cover the membership benefits. The principal friend of the Book Arts Press is the University of Virginia Library. Are there many more libraries that have contributed more greatly to your education lately? Especially in the Foot, Needham, and Pickwood courses, think of the books that you've had access to in special collections, many of them vault books of great expense, and therefore great difficulty to page. In the Descriptive Bibliography course, think of our ability to invade every flat surface in both Alderman and Clemens libraries. In the e-text course, think of the cost to the library of maintaining that electronic classroom which has to be virtually remade every two or three years, and which we use two weeks of the year four percent, five percent of the usable time of the year and pay nothing for the privilege. Remember also that the Dome Room is a library space at this university. It was the original library of the university and remains under library control. The library turns the exhibition space there over to the Book Arts Press to our great benefit. The Associates of the University of Virginia Libraries is a group that you might also, if you like to join library support groups, wish to consider joining. Again, their basic membership is not very expensive, and it seems to me that more than most libraries, this is one that deserves your support in this country. Finally, while I'm selling things, uh, please consider joining the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia. It has the distinction of being virtually the first scholarly society. In the country in any field to put the entire run of its journal studies and bibliography more than 50 years of it online free it's available to anyone except for the current year which goes up at the end of the year who has the web address and the web address is easily acquirable the society's presence reinforces the university of virginia's commitment and reminds it of that commitment to support bibliography and the history of the book. It, too, I think, deserves your support. And also, here, it deserves, I think, your institutional support, those of you who have one. Uh, There are a relatively small number of institutions that subscribe to studies in bibliography, and uh, it seems a reasonable thing to ask your institutions to do to support your own work. I think that the principal way that the Book Arts Press will change over the next several years is the continuing substantial and rapid improvement of the Book Arts Press collections. We've been spending fifteen to $20,000 a year on them in recent years, and it has really made a substantial difference, especially when you consider the enormous amount of material that we get by gift, material of a quality which literally would have been unthought of ten years ago by this little operation. Until the late 1980s, when I wanted to teach the difference between sheep, goat, and calf in my Columbia University courses, I had to take the class to the Gorlier Club because we literally did not have a sufficient number of examples of sheep and goat and calf to teach it out of the Book Arts Press collections. And we were faced by a relatively hostile special collections environment at Columbia University. You have only to look around in the Book Arts Press to see what difference ten years has made in this department, as in a great many others. I have a case study for you of the sort of thing that we've been up to lately. Not long after the Book Arts Press moved to Charlottesville in 1992, I discovered that the local antiquarian bookseller Franklin Gillum owned the second volume, and the second volume of two only, of a massive two-volume early folio edition of The Letters of St. Jerome, printed in Parma in 1480, Gilliam had acquired this book along with the stock of the Brick Row Bookshop, which was founded in New Haven in the 1920s and later moved to New York City, the the Brick Row Bookshop, which Gilliam purchased in 1954. He moved the stock of Brick Row and our Jerome along with it uh, to uh, a couple of locations in Texas, Austin in particular, and then moved the shop and St. Jerome again uh, when he took the shop to San Francisco in 1971. When Franklin Gillum moved finally to Charlottesville in the early 1980s to marry Mary Cooper, now Mary Cooper Gillum, uh, Jerome came along yet still again. And Franklin set up business under his own name, leaving the Brick Row name behind in San Francisco. The binding and the final leaves of the 1480 Parma St. Jerome were in such bad shape that Franklin Gillum and I agreed in 1994 that the Book Arts Press might actually be able to afford to buy it as a teaching example. The transaction did not finally take place until after Franklin Gillum's death. The book was appraised through the good offices of Richard Raymer and Franklin Gillum's widow, Mary Cooper Gillum, sold it to us in 1996 donating half the value as a gift. We acquired the book on the advice of Nicholas Pickwode, who pointed out that though its binding was rotting away and you have not seen a rotting binding until you've seen this one, it looked like dead Excello sponge. Although the binding was uh, pretty much gone, one cover was totally gone and the other cover dying, its sewing structure incredibly was still intact. Pickwood agreed to accept a Book Arts Press Commission to replace the book's goatskin cover and boards with a modern facsimile, replicating the structure of the original binding while retaining the original cords and sewing. He took the book across the Atlantic in November 1996 as carry-on luggage, a noble act considering the size of this book. And in January 1998, Volume 2 of this surprisingly well-traveled St. Jerome returned to Charlottesville, with a brand-new red goatskin cover, fine-tooled to resemble the original. Nicholas made special stamps for that purpose over new quarter-sawn beach boards, and you must ask Nicholas how you get quarter-sawn beach boards these days, with new vellum endpapers and new brass clasps. He repaired the deteriorating leaves at the beginning, and especially at the end of the book, and he made a monumentally sturdy, drop, uh, a monumentally sturdy case. Our copy of volume two, of Hieronymus Epistoli, to give the book its name and religion, has been foliated in a manuscript hand. The foliator skipped the six-leaf table of contents at the beginning of the volume and began numbering with the recto of the first leaf of the text proper on leaf six of our copy, which is missing the first blank, leaf seven of a complete copy. And he numbered his way steadily through to the end of the book, ending with folio 323, If he had been more careful, he would not have skipped leaf Y5 between folios 192 and 193, as he numbered them, and he would thus have ended up with folio 324, a complete copy of the book, thus has 6 plus 324 equals 330 leaves. Ours has 329, because it lacks the first blank. The book was printed in Parma in 1480 by an unknown printer. He is called simply the printer of Jerome Epistoli, 1480, in part 7 of the catalog of books printed in the 15th century now in the British Museum, where he is said to have produced five books in the period between January 1480 and November 1481, and where his printing types are described as neat and regular. Jerome's letters had been in print for more than ten years before our Parma edition appeared in 1480. Schweinheim and printed the first edition of Jerome's letters in Rome in 1468. In his census of incunables in American libraries, Frederick Goff notes subsequent editions printed in Strasbourg, 1469, Rome, two 1470 editions, plus editions in 1476 and 1479, Mainz, 1470, and Venice, 1476. The 1480 Parma edition is thus no earlier Than the ninth printed version of Jerome's letters. And remember, these are two massive folio volumes. And there were at least a dozen subsequent editions printed during the 15th century alone. This was not the sort of book that you threw out casually after acquiring a copy. The ISTC lists about 100 extant copies of the 1480 Parma edition, including a number of libraries owning volume one only. Could it be? One of them is Yale, an institution in New Haven, Connecticut, where volume two that we own once lived. Could it be? St. Jerome, whose dates, I need hardly remind you, are (laughs) 331-420, was traditionally regarded as the most learned of the Latin fathers. He is best known for his translation of the Bible into Latin, and for his biblical commentaries, and, for, of course, for his lion, who, alas, is worthless. He was virtually unique in his time, a Christian scholar with a good knowledge of Hebrew. He was a vigorous participant in the religious controversies of his time, and his letters, and there are a lot of them he lived into his late 80s, are an important source alike for the historian, theologian, and student of Scripture. His writing style was superb. According to his modern biographer, J. N. D. Kelly, he used the Latin language with an expertise and a flexibility and a sense of color and cadence, which recalled and sometimes surpassed the giants of the classical era. In Kelly's biography, St. Jerome's Life and Work, Kelly sums up uh, Jerome's far-reaching influence this way. The elegance of his style and his success at putting classical culture to the surface of Christianity were to captivate humanist scholars. Erasmus, in particular, was to fall under the spell of the Christian Cicero, finding him more congenial than Augustine. Most people are more congenial than Augustine. <laughs> and was to publish the first collected edition of his writings, Erasmus. Jerome was also, from the 13th to the 18th century, to inspire the brushes of great artists as no other early Christian figure. Think of the Durer Jerome. Think, of the, indeed, the Durer Jerome's think of everyone else's. Kelly concludes in his biography, he was the best equipped Christian scholar of his day and for centuries to come. So this is a particularly useful book for us to own. We have essentially a new incunable. It's the real thing, but it's in a binding that can be played with, and indeed many of you have played with it this week. Nicholas Prickwote is currently working on a double-sided glass case in which to put the remains of our St. Jerome's original binding, as well as additional displays showing the original and recreated headbands and clasps and such, and finally a detailed description of the conservation work he has done. The whole will be an ornament to the Book Arts Press's collection, so I hope you'll agree. We hope to expand greatly our arsenal of precisely such teaching materials. Gary Frost, who was in residence this week, is, I hope, working away at the moment, or almost at the moment since he's here, on a full-size cutaway binding model for us, showing medieval binding structure similar to the one he uses in the slinky scene in How to Operate a Book. And Nicholas and I are in the process of setting up a formal program of model building for which we have just purchased 380 sheets of very expensive handmade paper. Through the good offices of Michael Twyman, we have commissioned a full-size working model of Senefelder's first lithographic press, one other known. It should be here next year, and I hope that 50% of you will be able to play with it. (laughs) These again will be paid for by the Friends of the Book Arts Press. If Rare Book School could not exist without the Friends, it could exist even less without its faculty. Paul Banks began his Rare Book School teaching career in 1985. He's teaching his present Rare Book School course for the first time this week. Richard Noble has been associated with Rare Book School as a staff member since 1988. He joined the Rare Book School faculty last year. This year he's co-teaching the Descriptive Bibliography course with me for the second time to its great profit. Miriam Foote, on her way back from the Folger with her class, has been teaching in rare book school since 1993. This week she's teaching her course for the fourth time. David Seaman has been teaching in rare book school since 1993. This week he is teaching his course for the tenth time. Paul Needham has been teaching in rare book school since the beginning, 1983. This week he, like David Seaman, is teaching his tenth rare book school course. Nicholas Pickwode has been teaching in Rare Book School since 1987. This week, incredibly, he's teaching his course for the 21st time. Counting me in, too, at the end of the day tomorrow, the seven members of this week's Rare Book School faculty will have taught a total of 78 Rare Book School courses, or more than 10 apiece. Not bad for a school that's been in existence for only 15 years. I have a little story to tell you. In 1971 or 72, I think it was, the elderly Theodore Besterman agreed to give a speech at the Columbia School of Library Service. Besterman had come to America to deliver the Shoemaker Lecture, or perhaps the Shaw Lecture, I forget which, at Rutgers. The lecture was called Fifty Years a Bookman. And we latched on to a pre-existing condition and asked him to give the same speech at Columbia a couple of days later, which he agreed. When he arrived he insisted on being paid for his lecture in advance in cash so we all dug into our wallets and found the money and gave it to him whereupon he said well this certainly won't disturb my amateur status as a lecturer 50 years a bookman in those days I was doing letterpress posters for Book Arts Press Lectures and I had the type still standing. So I made a single unique second state of a poster for presentation to my dean, who had just coughed up forty dollars for the privilege of listening to this speech. Fifty years a bastard. <laughs> Indeed, people to whom I've told this story said, oh no, it was much longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ashamed to say that, like Mr. Besterman, Rare Book School does not disturb the amateur status of the Rare Book School faculty as lecturers and teachers. They are systematically underpaid and exploited by Rare Book School for all of our benefit. And, uh, the school could not exist without that support. Come and take a look at St. Jerome, which we have trotted out yet still again for your uh, delectation. And in another room, have a drink at the reception which follows this lecture. Thank you for your attention.